Episode 28, Why Exaggeration is Lying, and We Love Our Labels. Rethinking the Bible with Jack Pelham. Welcome to Rethinking the Bible. This is an audio podcast where we apply reality-based thinking to interpreting the Bible. Reality-based thinking is my name for a philosophy that seeks to make constant use of honesty, rationality, and responsibility in seeking out the reality of things while trying to avoid common errors. And for the record, I define reality as the state of things as they actually exist, as opposed to one's perceptions, beliefs, or wishes about them. And you should know, this is a serial podcast, so it's best if you start from episode one and work your way forward from there, because we lay some foundational principles up front, and you'll be lost later if you skip them now. I'm on a roll this weekend. I just finished one uh, podcast episode, and I'm now posting another. And so, um, how exciting. If only I could do this every week. Uh, today, I'm going to be reading from two blog posts uh, that I wrote uh, in the distant past. Uh, the first one, <clears throat> Why Exaggeration is Lying, that's from 2011. And actually, this uh, post has become one of the uh, top uh, posts on the internet regarding uh, exaggeration and lying. And then the second one is another called We Love Our Labels. Uh, these actually are somewhat related, uh, but they're both uh, a little shorter than I normally go. So I decided to put them together. And we'll see how much I feel compelled to uh, comment on them as we go. Uh, the first one, let me warn you if you're one of those, well, I didn't hear many Bible verses. <laughs> well, we've been talking about this uh, subject matter quite a lot about, you know, give careful thought to your ways and uh, stop judging by mere appearances, but make a right judgment. Uh, this is a lot about uh, judging and how we talk about things, how we uh uh, frame things for our friends and family and for others, and of course to ourselves. So I think you'll find this uh, very relevant to the uh, ongoing conversation. And then the second piece, uh, We Love Our Labels, uh, has a lot of scripture citation in that. So maybe that'll make you feel more comfortable. Uh, a lot of times, it, and it's funny, this is coming on the heels of the uh, episode we just did about Bible application, it's funny, a lot of times people in a Bible study just want to hear the scriptures and don't want to hear the scriptures thought about or reflected upon or um, matched up against the real world and such. So that's a lot of what this does. You'll hear uh, examples in this piece, both from religious thinking and from uh, political thinking and other things too. So uh, without saying any further about it, I think I'll just go right ahead and read to you. This is from December 8, 2011, Why Exaggeration is Lying, and you can find this at jackpelham.com, and I will put a link to uh, both of these pieces in the show notes. So here we go. Many people would readily opine that to exaggerate is not the same as to lie. To them, the difference is assumed to be quite obvious. Ask them to define the difference, however, and it becomes immediately apparent that no rational definition can be found. And when no rational defense can be made for a paradigm, it's time to drop it. 
Here's an easy-to-understand proof that exaggeration is lying. Let us consider the case of Billy at his 20-year high school reunion. Billy makes exactly $50,000 a year at his job, but he wants to impress his old friends, so he tells them that he makes, quote, over a million dollars, end quote, a year. Is this a lie? Yes, it is. And interestingly, most people would probably say that it is. Even if Billy doesn't think it's a lie, any of his former classmates who discovered that he only makes 50000 would feel that they had been deceived. It is a lie indeed. Now, please raise your hand if you agree with me so far. <laughs> okay, good. Now, is it still a lie if Billy tells his old classmates that he makes $750,000 a year? Remember, the truth is that he makes exactly 50000 Well, yes, it's still a lie. Now, what if Billy tells them he makes 500000 a year? Is that still a lie? Yes, it is. Not that the difference matters, but $500,000 is 10 times more than what Billy actually makes. And what if Billy only claims to make 100000 That, too, is a lie, for it is not true. Billy makes exactly $50,000. Are you with me so far? So what if Billy says 60000 or what if he says, in the high 50s? Or what if he says, 55,000? Would each of these figures be a lie too? Yes, each one of them is a lie, right? So here's your test. If Billy tells him that he makes $50,001 a year, is that a lie too? Why, yes, it is. Now, if you still believe that exaggeration is not the same as lying, Please tell us how much Billy can increase his actual salary figure of $50,000 before he is lying. Here's a good test of whether you're lying or not. A typical affirmation at the bottom of a legal document might say something like this. I certify that this is a true and accurate report to the best of my knowledge and belief. When you tell people things, do you both know and believe them to be true if not, you're lying, for you state things as if they are true, even when you know or believe that they are not. So let's practice a little bit, eh? Imagine that you're returning home from a crowded party at a friend's house. Someone in your family asks you, how many people were there? You answer, there must have been a hundred. How do you know that there must have been a hundred? Did you count them? If not, then how do you know? The better answer would have been, I didn't count, but it seemed really crowded to me. You could even go so far as to estimate the number, but only if you actually think through what you remember seeing. You might say, there could have been 30 or 40, or there could have been far more than that. I wasn't paying close enough attention to have a good estimate. This is how honest people think. I don't mean to suggest that exaggeration is always out of place. I think it has a natural home in humor. For example, if I want to stress that a certain relative is really old, it seems to work just fine to tell folks that he's about 175 years old. Everyone knows I'm not serious, and in cases where the actual number is not important, the humor is no distraction at all. Humor ought not be used as an excuse, however, when the real intention of the exaggeration is to deceive. When I find myself not wanting to tell the truth, it is tempting to deceive. For example, 
When a nosy person is asking about personal details that are none of his business, and about which I expect him to give unwanted advice if I answer his questions, it is tempting to find an easy way out of the situation. I could simply lie with an answer that I imagine would satisfy the person's standards, but if I do that, I have compromised myself. Why should I undermine my own character simply to be rid of a nuisance? Shall I become a chameleon, changing colors as needed to avoid bothersome people and situations? I don't think so. I find it much better to be honest and to confront the inappropriate question. I don't want to discuss that with you, is a much better response, or even the sharper retort, that's none of your business. I've lately made quite a study of the psychology of rational, that is, reality-based, thinking. One of my particular interests is how people manage so often to abdicate their natural roles as guardians of what goes into and comes out of their own minds, carelessly adopting and promoting various unrealities. Here's an article on that topic. And this is me breaking in here to tell you that there is a hyperlink to uh, that other article. So going on. Chances are we all tend to lie to ourselves about some number of things. Ours is a culture in which such things are common and are even encouraged. And if we are not actively lying, but are simply mistaken, we are generally mistaken about a great number of things. Unfortunately, it simply isn't fashionable in our society to care enough to get all our facts straight. And what a shame that is, for between where we stand and the impossible infinity of perfection, there lies a much improved middle ground that is quite attainable if only we would try. And now I'm going to read uh, the second article. This is from May 20, 2012. We love our labels. I'm about to crack open a can of worms that can't be fully dealt with in a single article. This is a topic that has been strongly on my mind lately, and it seems time, at least, to get it on the record, if only briefly so. I observe that a great many people seem to label themselves in various ways. This is a common behavior, and we see examples of it every day. Here are a few examples, just to get the ball rolling. I'm a Christian. I'm a Democrat. I'm an environmentalist. I am a scientist. I'm a constitutionalist. I'm a birther. Our labels range from the very general, such as I'm a conservative, to the very specific, such as I'm a mother. In, in the one case, we may be referring to a large or complex body of philosophical tenets, and in the other, to a mere matter of fact that has nothing to do with philosophy. I'm a mother, for example, would be true of any female who has had a child, regardless of her beliefs or behaviors. Philosophical labels, on the other hand, tend to carry with them at least some level of expectation as to behavior. For example, we would probably be surprised to see someone who wears a tree-hugger t-shirt dumping his garbage alongside the highway. And why? It is because the term tree-hugger is generally used of those who have a strong concern for the health of the environment. Though there are exceptions, my impression is that most people tend to label themselves with labels that they find appealing in some fashion. They do not generally label themselves as their philosophical adversaries might label them. Indeed, who wears a t-shirt that says right-wing extremist or 
raging liberal. And who wears a t-shirt that says, wild-eyed conspiracy theorist? No, we tend to call ourselves only what we find appealing. And we don't often find ourselves uh, driven to find a label for every trait we possess, but only for those that we think are worthy of advertising. Does anybody wear a t-shirt that says, I'm fat? Or one that says, my house is generally messy? Likely not. Yet the rare person, like Oscar the Grouch, may revel in an unappealing label, but most tend to stick with the labels that they think speak well of them. In fact, it's quite similar to clothing fashion. Who voluntarily wears something that he finds distasteful? Have you ever bought something only to discover later that the contents in the package have been mislabeled? Or have you ever misjudged something by making a wrong assumption based upon what it appeared to be at first glance? I did this once when I was a kid, oh, and this is me breaking in as if I haven't done it since, because I most certainly have, uh, so I have to pick on my own writing here. Anyway, going on, I was hunting for something exciting in the refrigerator when I discovered a mason jar with what appeared to be apple juice in it. When I took a sip, I discovered that it wasn't apple juice at all, but my mom's leftover cooking grease. Needless to say, it didn't take much to have enough of that. And I'm reminded of the episode of MASH in which some prankster put a toothpaste label on a tube of Preparation H. The results, as I recall, were quite upsetting. Events like these can be comical or aggravating, and sometimes both, such as when an, uh, when an event that we find aggravating proves to be hilarious entertainment for our friends. But I digress. What I'm getting at here is what happens when a person mislabels himself. Billy was hired because he had a reputation of being a great salesman. But what happens when his performance on the new job proves otherwise? Tommy was asked to be the group's treasurer because he was known to be trustworthy. But what happens when it's discovered that he's been stealing money from the group? Sue was supposed to be an awesome tutor. But what happens when little Jerry ends up failing his math test even with her tutoring? Obviously, people get hurt in such situations and it's very likely that we've all suffered from people who are so mislabeled. But what if we are those people? And what if the inaccurate labels we wear are the ones we've put there ourselves? Does that hurt anybody? And do we hurt ourselves in this way? Well, yes. I think we do hurt both others and ourselves in this way. But the average person may not readily see it like that. I suppose a person may adopt a label for any of a number of reasons, some good and some not so good. Perhaps a label is adopted simply on a whim, such as with the youth who imprudently decides she is a Gator fan because her family, with whom she does not get along, are Seminole fans. Or on the opposite extreme, someone may decide after years of study and reflection that he is not a Republican in his political philosophy after all, but a Libertarian. Whatever the case may be, an interesting challenge is set once the label is adopted. Will the person be true to the label he or she wears? Will he or she even care? I find that the more deliberation that went into the selection of the label, the more likely is the wearer of the label to abide by it. For example, there is a difference between the person who calls himself a constitutionalist because he has studied the document and finds it a worthy blueprint for our government, 
and the person who labels himself the same merely because his favorite politician has called himself a constitutionalist. In the one case, the label is thoroughly considered, and in the other, it is quite vain. When labels are vainly donned, they reveal some disturbing facts about their wearers. Consider the incongruities presented in the following scenarios. Number one, Gern tells us that he's for getting back to the Constitution, yet Gern has never once invested the 45 minutes it takes to read the Constitution. Number two, Ralph assures us that he is an avid Christian, yet we can observe that Ralph is anything but an avid student of the teachings of Christ. We see that he has no intention of becoming an expert on the Christian teachings in the Bible. Number three, Lurleen tells us that she is a health nut, but we see her routinely ingesting all manner of foods, additives, and chemicals that have repeatedly and soundly been denounced by others as unhealthy. Number four, Chumley tells us that he's a seeker of truth, but we witness that he fails to edit his blog post accordingly when he has been corrected as to some matter of fact. And number five, Fred boasts that he's a scientist and that all his beliefs are derived from actual evidence and not from mere conjecture, hearsay, or mythology as most of the rest of the world operates. Yet Fred has never done his own experimentation to validate the conclusions he believes to be true. He believes it because he was told or because he read it in a trusted professor's book. Behaviors like these are either ignorant or hypocritical, or perhaps some of each, and yet they are so prevalent in our culture as to amount to a veritable philosophical epidemic. No one wears a t-shirt that says, I'm either ignorant or hypocritical, or perhaps some of each. No, that would not be an appealing notion of oneself, even if it were true. So they continue in these various misnomers, even after they've been exposed. When the constitutionalist has been exposed as one who cares so little about the document that he has never once read it, does he then reject the label thenceforward in the interest of accuracy? Amazingly, many do not. And when a Christian has been exposed as someone who doesn't really have an ardent interest in learning and understanding the teachings of Jesus, does he continue to wear the label? Again, many do. When a seeker of truth is exposed as not caring enough about the truth to correct himself when he is proven wrong, does he cease to fancy himself as a seeker? Many do not. So what's up with this? People with black skin do not normally call themselves white, and people over six feet tall do not normally consider themselves short. So why do people tend to cling to philosophical labels after they have been shown to be something other than what that label purports to define? Isn't the very nature of the labeling process to manufacture a label that accurately identifies the contents? When we want to distinguish between the spray bottle that has a cleaning mixture of vinegar and water and the ironing spray bottle with water only, do we put a water label on both? Of course not. Getting it right is the whole purpose behind putting a label on a bottle in the first place. Who wants to wear a t-shirt that was ironed with vinegar water? Why then are so very many people content to wear philosophical labels that they know, or should know, are not accurate labels for them? 
Whatever the motive, we may be certain that it does not come from a healthy and mature pursuit of the truth. I believe that it often comes from vanity, from the drive to perceive ourselves as better than we truly are, or to be so perceived by others. It is dishonesty, therefore, that drives it, and what a great dysfunction this represents. Clearly, the individual in question has greater things in mind for himself, for he aspires to some lofty label, yet he is so easily contented merely with the notion of his new label and it's so easily satisfied without ever attaining to the actual practice of the philosophy that label espouses. Interestingly, God warned the Hebrews of this very sort of behavior when he commanded, You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Exodus 20, verse 7, New King James Version. Many think it is merely a prohibition against cursing by use of God's name, I believe, however, that this was a warning against the inaccurate use of labels. I believe that God was saying here that they ought not call themselves by God's name if they are not truly devoted to his values and precepts. And in particular, those in Israel had been called God's chosen people by none other than God himself. But he warns them in several places not to automatically assume themselves to be among that number if they are not wanting in their hearts and minds to be like God. If I accuse you of theft when you have stolen nothing, you will be incensed, right? And if I accuse you of arrogance when you're just trying to help me by correcting me, you'll be offended, or at least saddened, right? Then why don't you hate to be labeled inaccurately in good ways? When you can play two musical instruments well and your friend says of you, Rufus can play any instrument, do you hate the mischaracterization? Or when another says, Rufus is an awesome golfer, and you know that you only have mediocre skills. Do you hate the mischaracterization as much as you hate being falsely accused of stealing? If not, why not? Why is the truth of the matter so important in the one case, but not in the other? Though this article is about all manner of self-labels, here's a real eye-opener from the world of Christianity. Uh, 2 Corinthians 13, 5. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not realize that Christ Jesus is in you, unless, of course, you fail the test? Apparently, the author did not consider that a person was a Christian simply because the person thought he was, but only if the person actually lived according to the various tenets that were germane to the religion. How radical, right? Many today choose labels to distinguish themselves from others. Some examples of this are, I'm a Reagan Republican. I'm an African American. I'm a real conservative. I'm a Southern Baptist. I'm a strict constructionist. Some of these popular labels are problematic, however, whether in their ostensible meaning or in their application. Is a Reagan Republican, for example, in support of everything Reagan did as president, such as his multiple violations of the Constitution and his controversial arms for hostages deal with Iran and Nicaragua? Or what about the African-American? Was he born in Africa? Has he ever even visited there? And how many can be a real conservative when no consistent definition of conservative exists anywhere? Indeed, even if he strongly believes in 99% of everything the conservative talkers support, 
uh, but is adamantly opposed to America's unquenchable empirical war lust, they will all tell him that he's not a real conservative, will they not? Similarly, how can any person claim to be a Lutheranist or a Basbatarian when he flatly disagrees with his church institution on some point of doctrine or practice? Does the label somehow indicate a less-than-complete support of the institution's doctrines and practices? If so, why does no one wear a t-shirt that says, I'm mostly proud to be a Basbatarian, or I'm 97.5% Lutheranist? <laughs> no, the implication of a typical label is complete adherence. And this also argues against the member who, while having no particular disagreement with the doctrines of his institution, has simply never studied those doctrines in order to know whether he should properly agree or not. Many people support a number of causes outwardly when they have no good idea of what all they are supporting. They'll say, I support our troops, but they have no idea that a great deal of what our troops uh, do nowadays violates the very oath those troops took to support and defend the Constitution against all enemies, foreign and domestic. Nor does the average citizen feel responsible as an American for the carnage that is sometimes inflicted by our troops on innocent civilians. Similarly, someone may be proud to be a Demublican, but has no idea of the ongoing artifice and scheme that comprises the Demublican National Committee, nor of the incorrigible culture of corruption that exists within the party's hierarchy. Meanwhile, the citizen's church may be involved in or responsible for all manner of corruption in which he is unaware because he simply has no interest in its corporate policies and behaviors. Or his favorite charity, for which he puts a bumper sticker on his car, may also be corrupt, and he would never know it. The things I'm discussing here are difficult for our Facebook society. When human conversation has been largely reduced by clicking like in response to a one-liner notion, I suppose there's a certain danger in making too much out of, the, out of the labels a person has chosen for himself. Could it be that he's a liberal, whatever that's supposed to mean, simply because he admires some liberal person he sees in the media or in office? Could it be that she adopted the Christian label simply because she went to church once and liked it, or because some sermon he heard once on the TV stirred his emotions? Well, that sure would explain a lot, wouldn't it? Surely there are many who think more deeply than this, but can't we see that there are many who do not? Perhaps no better example exists of this phenomenon than the popularity of clothing branded with the image of Che Guevara, an Argentinian political leader about whom many know absolutely nothing. Guevara is described this way by Wikipedia. An Argentine Marxist revolutionary, physician, author, intellectual, guerrilla leader, diplomat, and military theorist, a major figure of the Cuban Revolution, his stylized visage has become a ubiquitous countercultural symbol of rebellion and global insignia with popular culture. How interesting, then, that so very few people who wear his image would ever describe themselves by similar terms. Why, then, are they wearing it? Nothing more than the slightest of notions, however vain and or fleeting they may be, is necessary for the adoption of a label. 
and nothing more than habit is necessary for the continued wearing of that label. That is all that is required for the individual to adopt and to wear the label. But look what it does to everybody else. Look how our culture is filled with such advertisements, people, causes, companies, ideas, things put forth merely for profit in many cases, or even for subversion of sound principle, ignorant things, stupid things, incorrect things, fallacious and irrational arguments, and vain notions. Consider these. War is good for the economy. We're making the world safe for democracy. America, love it or leave it. You've got to hit rock bottom before you can really change. Coke adds life. Get out the vote. Vote for the lesser of two evils. You deserve a break today. A nutritious part of this balanced breakfast. And so forth. Our society is filled with such bad notions and assertions. It simply does not matter that they can be disproved by fact, logic, and sourcing. No, what matters is the popularity with which they are adopted. And why? because popular adoption equates to money and or power for someone. For every vain notion that is believed by some member of the public, something is gained by the party promoting that notion. People rarely realize that they are being used, however, that their very minds are the marketplace in which marketers vie for attention. They tend to think that they have freely chosen which ideas to value, and perhaps that is true to some extent, But that choice is oftentimes not a well-considered choice, not one that they would have created from scratch had they not had somebody else frame it for them in the first place. For example, who would ever come up with the idea that the best strategy for our country is to find two evil choices for president and then to choose from among them the one that is the lesser evil? No one would design such a system on his own just as no one spends his Saturday morning pondering whether he would prefer to drink arsenic over strychnine. So, you took a notion one day to hop aboard some bandwagon and to put on the t-shirt they gave you, but are you still on the wagon? And should you still be on the wagon? Are you off the wagon but still wearing the t-shirt they gave you? Are you on the wagon but have since removed the t-shirt? These are good questions and they represent the various states we may find ourselves in from time to time. But these are questions for thinking people. Non-thinking people simply will not care. I have worn and discarded several labels in my life, mostly because I would uh, come in time to realize certain fallacies or contradictions in them. I have left groups that systematically failed to achieve their stated goals, I have shunned labels that turned out to be indefinable or arbitrary. I have rejected membership where the accompanying label didn't seem to match the true prime directive of the institution. I like some things that some conservative people say and some things that some liberal people say, yet each camp is filled with notions I find repulsive. And lest someone assume that this makes me therefore a centrist, I shun that, too, as a meaningless and indefinable label. Unless you can demonstrate that all centrists agree with me, it's pretty clear that I'm not a centrist. 
I no longer feel compelled to join or to belong to nor to be known by my affiliations. Indeed, I find such affiliations to be so counterproductive to the maturation of our society that I wince when you discover me reading some certain book because of whatever you might assume is my motivation for reading it. I turned down the political talk radio when approaching a drive through in my car for fear that some bystander might hear Limbaugh and assume that I'm a supporter of his, or that they'll hear NPR and assume that I'm a liberal. Am I afraid of what people think? No, not really. After all, I'm a blogger and I write about controversial things all the time, when I could rather be silent if I feared the conflict. Instead, I'm afraid of what people won't think. What they won't think is, oh, he's listening to Limbaugh. He must be analyzing the rhetoric for errors. <laughs> no, what they'll do is to label me as a conservative or a Republican when I am neither, and it will be much harder to set them straight than if they never had the notion in the first place. So the next time you tell someone that you are a Demublican or a Republicrat, Maybe you shouldn't be so quick to take offense when they point out that your party violates the Constitution regularly, because it does. Indeed, even your own party claims to believe in constitutional government, so why aren't you upset when your own party's incumbent politicians vote to violate the Constitution? And the next time you tell someone that you are a Christian, Maybe you shouldn't be shocked if they expect you to be considerably more educated in the Bible than you are, or if they expect you to correct yourself immediately when one of your doctrinal errors is demonstrated. And if you're for getting back to the Constitution, don't be shocked if they expect you to have read the document, or that you should have already figured out that getting back to the Constitution, because we have so far to go, would be just about as tumultuous as having another civil war. See, some of us believe that a label ought to mean something more than that you simply have a notion to like something. For some of us, philosophy is a deliberate way of life and not just a checkout line impulse item. And how interesting it is that so many like to think of themselves as philosophers and yet refuse to think any deeper than the label itself. They are not thinking. They only think they're thinking. Here's a quotation from Don Marquis. If you make people think they're thinking, they'll love you. But if you really make them think, they'll hate you. I argued earlier in this article that people generally tend to label themselves only with such labels as they find appealing, or that they believe will be found appealing by those people whose opinions they value. I suppose there may be some value in railing against such people in hopes that they might just be embarrassed into adopting different paradigms. Regardless of how we get there, however, the real goal here is to reach the moment in which the individual is inclined to rethink his position freely in his own mind. Consider these examples of this kind of thinking. You know, life is better when I spend time trying to help others than when I'm just trying to find entertainment. Or, gee, they say Coke adds life, but I think it's shortening my life as well as compromising the quality of my life. Or, funny, I've always said that war is good for the economy, but now that I ponder the facts, I see that it's only good for the economy of certain companies. And besides that, 
I never stopped to question until now how being good for the economy is any justification for the great loss of life. Or, okay, I've been saying for years that I support the Constitution. I suppose I should put my money where my mouth is and actually read it at least once. Or, gee, I sure do say a lot of things, but I don't really know if they're really true or not. I'm going to start paying attention to that. Or, finally, I'm a member of this organization, but I have no idea who owns it and what their true agendas are, nor have I thoroughly studied its beliefs, teachings, and practices. Maybe I should look into that before I continue to consider myself a member. For all we know, folks, when we wear someone else's label, we're just being useful idiots for someone else's schemes. Perhaps it's time to toss out a few t-shirts and to cancel a few memberships until we've had time to think through some things at a deeper level than ever before. There is probably not a person alive who hasn't been duped by our hearsay society at one time or another. Have you? And that concludes the article. There is so much here to reflect upon. I think this happens so much in the churches that we will uh, hear an idea. Oh, yeah, I like that. We never thought through the implications of the idea, the unintended consequences and so forth. And uh, we get ourselves into so much unthinking trouble. That's why the labels are so very useful to us, uh, and in a bad way, mind you, not in a good way, because people who use labels very frequently are not thinking. It, it's a substitute for thinking. Oh, that thing over there, I can tell you in one word what that is. And then by that one word, you're supposed to understand whatever details are relevant about it. Well, that doesn't work. You know, I remember going to churches and I remember, for example, uh, reading the Apostles' Creed many, many years ago in a, uh, in a church meeting and everybody was reading in unison. And I thought, well, wait a minute, um, what does this all mean because I know this is made up by people. It's not like it uh, you know, it came out of the Bible as a result of prophecy. And so I'm thinking, well, what does this mean? And I realized, and you know, this is within a very few seconds, I'm not sure what it means. I need to look into at least parts of it. But I'm pretty sure that to a lot of my friends here who don't tend to be as prone to thinking through things as I do, and I wasn't very good at it at the time either. But um, I'm pretty sure my friends have even less idea than I do because they're just not the sort to think through these things. And so it wasn't long before I left, left that church because I started asking questions and examining things and finding that I was fairly alone in that pursuit, that that just wasn't part of the culture of that uh, particular group uh, to do those things. And I think the labels really help to perpetuate that kind of a mindless uh, subculture, uh, the mini society that one finds within a congregation or perhaps within the greater denomination. And you can tell uh, if you're familiar with a certain group, you can tell people from that group because they have uh, certain things in common, the way they think about things, the way they phrase things, the way they label things. Uh, but is this really helping us to think uh, is it helping us to give, uh, and again, I'm going back to episode number one, to give careful thought to your ways, or come, let us reason together, or, uh, you know, this is back to Jesus, 
uh, where he says that they should stop judging by mere appearances and make a right judgment. Well, the labels don't help any of that. And I'm not saying that to use a label for something is a bad idea. If that were the case, we would have to uh, get rid of all language because what are English words other than labels for ideas or things? But what I am saying is that so much of it gets done mindlessly. Oh, yeah, I know what that means. Sure, I know what that is. When actually we really don't know very well or not as uh, well as we ought to know. So these are constant concerns for me. Now, some people are going to say, well, look, Jack, you're being really picky here. Uh, labels can be general things. They can be useful. Uh, in fact, okay, sure, uh, let me feel that for a moment. If you were to ask me, well, are you more like a conservative or more like a liberal? Well, I might say, no, do you mean the current uh, prevailing definitions of those things? Uh, because, for example, you know, 70, 80 years ago, uh, a liberal meant something different from what it means today in politics. And so first I'd have to ask you, okay, which language are we talking about, the previous language or the, the current one? And so if you told me, well, I mean the current one, I'd say, okay, well, I would uh, gravitate more toward the um, conservative side. However, there's a lot about modern conservatism uh, that I don't like that I think is wrong. I think is, uh, you know, counterproductive or counterconstitutional and so forth. And so, uh, sure. Are the terms somewhat useful? Well, yeah. Uh, but you know, consider your street pilot in your car or your, uh, your Google maps app. What if it, it, said, uh, rather than arriving at destination, it said, you are now somewhere within a mile or two of your destination. Well, how useful would that be? And so I think we have a culture that tends to hand wave things, to hand wave the details. Ah, uh, that's fine. Just whatever, you know, um, Mr. Pellum, what do you want this? Oh, just lose it somewhere. Right. Uh, and then later, and my son James and I have this conversation frequently. He doesn't call me Mr. Pellum. But, hey, where do you want this? Uh, I don't care. Just lose it somewhere. And then later, well, why'd you put that here? <laughs> so, you know, it's become a bit of a running joke, actually, because he's frustrated when I don't want to deal with the answer at the moment. He has to make some decision, a practical decision. And then later, it turns out I didn't like wherever the thing got put. Well, whose fault is that? Uh, it's my fault, mostly, for not taking the time in the moment to come up with a very specific and workable answer that I'm going to be pleased with later. Uh, or it's uh, both of our faults for not realizing, oh, this little thing we're doing is more complicated than we wish. We're going to have to handle that thing twice, once just to get it out of the way now, and again later to um, get it out of the way of whether, wherever it got put temporarily. And this, of course, is just a practical example of uh, some of our thinking challenges. So in Christianity, I think this label business is very, very deadly in a cognitive and moral kind of way. I've shared before, I grew up going to a certain church. I knew there were other churches of the same brand in town. I didn't hardly know anything about those. We hardly ever went uh, to any of those. Uh, but I was pretty sure that our congregation was better than theirs. Now, how could I have known that? <laughs> By what data? 
could I have been making that assumption? And I submit that was not data at all. That was some bias. That was some inaccurate uh, bad thinking. And I was also sure that our uh, denomination was better than all the other denominations. And again, this was with no data whatsoever. I had zero information. Now, since, uh, funny, I've left that denomination over several points of disagreement uh, as I began to study, and I've left several others for the same reason. Uh, and so now I find myself uh, as a Bible student and not a church um, student, right? I'm, I'm not uh, interested in just going, attaching myself to this group. Okay, I'll follow what they say. And uh, it's like, well, look, if you can't show me in the Bible, what's the point? Well, uh, the difficulty here is our culture has become such a labeling culture, such a hand-waving, quick labeling, quick overgeneralization uh, that it's become rather uselessly minded. So we're not a culture that thinks through these things, and yet... If I read the Bible right, I've got God and Jesus and a bunch of the others saying, hey, you need to think through things and you need to get it right and make a good judgment and all that. So there's, there's a difference. Uh, one has to make a choice. Well, am I going to be part of this culture uh, that's in the Bible where they seem to want to get things right? Or am I going to be part of the modern hand-waving culture? And if so, which club, which camp am I going to be in? Because... Uh, they all do uh, quite similar, and this is true in politics too. Well, you might hate the Republicans or the Republicans, but um, they do a lot of the same kind of cheating that the other side does too. And so really, uh, this is quite a problem. Now, I wanted to say this one other thing before I close out. And this is about politics, but it's not only about politics, so I hope that you can expand this and make some application uh, beyond. Um, guy says, well, I'm a Democrat. And I'll say, well, how's that going? Uh, I assume you uh, love the Constitution? Oh, yeah. Okay, well, how's the Democratic Party going with um, following the Constitution and supporting it? And, of course, he has to say, well you know, not so good sometimes, and which is true. And I'll say, well, why don't you leave the party? It's not behaving well. He says, well, I prefer to look at the Democratic Party as uh, what its platform says that it is. Uh, in, in its official platform, it says, you know, we stand for A, B, and C, and we're against D, E, and F. And uh, I like that platform, and so I prefer to look at the party as what it says it is. <laughs> and my response is, so you don't care about the reality of how it behaves when it's in office? You would rather just listen to its press release that it puts out? Because how is this any different from marketing? Oh, yeah. I bought that, um, oh, whatever. I bought that detergent, and it actually stained my clothes within a blue color. Well, it says that it's uh, color safe, and or you know whatever the words are. I'm no laundry expert, 
but it says it's good for your clothes. Well, yeah, but it's not. I'm not ever buying that again. Oh, well, in politics, your party says it's one thing. It behaves a different way while it's in office, and then you keep buying it. So you claim to support the Constitution. Your party does damage to the Constitution, yet you keep supporting the party uh, based on what they tell you. Well, in marketing, uh, this would be considered foolish, right? You're buying a product that's hurting you, yet you keep buying it, and you, yet you know it's hurting you. Well, I really like the label. <laughs> I like that shampoo. Sure, it's making my hair fall out, but it says it's good for me. And so I prefer to keep believing that, you see. And uh, so how do you size up your party? By what they say they are or by, or by what they habitually do when you put them in power, right? Well, same thing with the church. If, and I, this is why I share the political example. One, I think it's worthy of sharing and thinking about because Christians need to think well even through political things. Uh, but uh, number two, if your church says, oh, we're the only ones doing it, or we're the one true church. Uh, really? Okay. <laughs> well, a couple of questions. One, are you true in every way? Uh, this goes back to our episode we just had on applying the Bible. How consistent are you with that? You know, if you've got some rules about applying this passage, well, what about that one? And so forth. Uh, but then number two, are you... You think that your church is the only one who's doing it right. Uh, okay, have you even looked at other churches? Well, sure I have. Uh, like the church on the street, they're wrong about, uh, you know, doctrine A uh, and doctrine B too. Okay, right. And so if you were to look at every doctrine and give them a, a report card, what would they get? Well, I don't know, but, you know, I just consider it an F because they get A and B wrong. Okay, and, and have you done the same sort of uh, work for your own group? Well, I mean, we're pretty much right about everything. Really? How do you know that? Well, if we were wrong, God would have told us. <laughs> if we were wrong, we'd know it. If we were wrong, our preacher would know it, right? Well, that's a lot of assumptions, isn't it? So you're not really looking at stuff. You're just hand-waving your position. And really, it comes down to, well, I prefer this over the other, I was raised this way, not the other. And I could even say, well, tell me about the other. How much do you actually know? And the answer is normally not much. Sometimes it's, well, I used to go there. So, okay, that's fine. Uh, and, you know, that's fair, if at least somewhat fair. But a lot of times, you know, we're making these value judgments based on one or two points of data and not on some global view. So the labeling thing is just such a useful tool for the cognitive miser who doesn't want to think it all through. And so let me ask you this. Uh, concerning your own character, uh, the human character, the character of the Christian, which parts of our character, according to the Bible, are we not supposed to be concerned about? Which parts don't matter? Well, I cursed at my neighbor. I was mad at him. Oh, that's okay, bro. That doesn't matter. <laughs> you know, Galatians 3 says that doesn't matter. You can curse at him. Just don't be angry when the sun still goes down, right? And, of course, it doesn't say that. So which parts don't matter? There's a question for you. 
which things in your political philosophy don't matter. In other words, well, you can be wrong about this and that's okay. These things require some good thinking. We ought to be good thinking. We're made in the image of God. We ought to live that way. That should be our aspiration. And yes, we're going to make mistakes. Uh, that's what we do. Uh, we don't have to make any particular mistake. We could work on anything harder than we do and do better at it than we do. I don't believe, like some do, that we are doomed to utter failure in everything, that we're total worms and incapable even of wishing a good thing. I don't believe that. I think that's some made-up, twisted stuff. And uh, although it's very popular, it tends to absolve people of their responsibility to live in the image of God, does it not? And I think it's a big excuse where they've twisted the doctrines. And we'll continue to talk about that. As we will continue to talk about everything, there are so many things. I'm so glad to get this uh, uh, episode finally on the record because I want to add it to the uh, foundation that we're building as we think through these other uh, Bible things. And they're, they are limitless practically. So uh, I apologize for the uh, noise you hear in the background today. It's windy uh, somewhat, and uh, the doors on my um, great room of space are rattling in the wind occasionally. So that's what you're hearing if you're wondering about that. And before I leave you, I'll remind you one more time, we have a PayPal link on a reality-based thing. I'm sorry, that's the wrong website, on rethinkingthebible.com. And that goes to help us um, as we support this uh, podcast. We're not incorporated with this. It's just a, a thing we do as uh, sole proprietors, and we could certainly use your help. It costs uh, over $750 a year to run it, and it's nice when we're not struggling uh, in the the in the poor months to pay the bills. So uh, we appreciate your help very much with that. I hope you're finding this helpful. The other thing I would very much appreciate, in fact, even more than the money, is your feedback. I'd love to know, hey, I love this. Hey, I hate that. Hey, you're an idiot. Uh, or you're a coward. Somebody called me a coward yesterday. Uh, I'd love to know your feedback on these things, even uh, questions. And i got to warn you, I may not know a good answer to every question, but I'd be quite happy to talk, to take some um, some question and answer type things. Uh, although, uh, like I like I said, uh, a lot of it I may have to, because I'm crunched for time, I may have to say, look, I just don't know enough about that to answer that question well. And so I'm sorry, I don't know everything. But um, now if I had enough money to go full time, okay, that would be a different matter, right? But we're not anywhere close to that. So uh, anyway, I quite enjoy doing this. I do it for my own good. Uh, plus, I would like some of these ideas that I get from the Bible to have a voice and to be heard more in our culture than they are, because I think it gets rather lonely for the real thinker out there who wants to be honest, rational, and responsible. Sometimes it's hard to find people to talk through things with. So I would like to at least be that voice, and hopefully you have people locally that you can sit and discuss things with too. So uh, please do uh, consider uh, donating, and please also uh, consider taking a moment to write in. You can write on the website, uh, or you can, of course, contact me through the website on the contact page. And I would very much enjoy to hear from you. And um, I suppose that'll do it for this time. Thanks for joining in.